Hey everyone, welcome to City Church OTR's Sermons Podcast. Here you will find all of the sermons and teachings that are given at our Sunday services. We also have our original City Church OTR podcast, which has more conversations, interviews, and more interactive content. As always, we would love to meet you. Check out our Instagram to see what we're doing this week and our website, citychurchotr.com, to meet one of our pastors. Enjoy. I love that we've done that once before, and it is just really cool, too. Those were not paid actors. Those are just real people <clears throat> that uh, have scripture yeah, laid on their heart. And so um, the Bible's a big deal here at our church, and um, we love to open that regularly. So uh, my name's Chris, and I am uh, the pastor here at City Church. If you're new, welcome. It's so good to have you here. Uh, we are a new church. Uh, we just turned a year old and uh, serving uh, talk a lot about the urban core of Cincinnati, love this city, and, um, and love like figuring things out and getting to do um, ministry in the heart of the city. And so if you're new, welcome. Uh, I know I'd love to meet you. I know Caitlin said that as well. Um, I, uh, I was actually, this past week, I was in Vermont, uh, as you do. I'd never been there before, and I was at a teaching cohort. So it was like um, 30 people, mostly pastors, but pastors, authors, and different kinds of communicators. And I went um, because my wife made me. Uh, <laughs> a few months ago, it came up that John Tyson, who was like one of my two pastoral heroes, was going to be leading this. And it's like in a cabin in Vermont with 30 people, so you'd get to know him. And then another guy, Jefferson Bethke, who I really uh, enjoy as well. And I was like, I'm just too busy. Like, it's too much going on. And she made me go. And I'm so thankful that she did. It was so good um, because I love this guy, this guy, John Tyson, so much of what he's saying. He started a church in uh, Manhattan, and so much of what he's saying is influencing the way I'm thinking and uh, reading scripture. And so uh, it was such a cool experience. Also, if I'm not better at this, if I'm not better at teaching over the next few months, we should collectively ask for my money back um, (laughs) because that was also the goal is that, like, you become a better communicator of God's words and God's ideas. Um, but I go there, and so I'm ready. It's the first session. It's Monday night. And, uh, and so the idea is that you're going to learn a lot about like how to craft a, whether it's a sermon or a message or a book. And, uh, and so I thought we'd start, John uh, got up, and I thought we'd start with like maybe sermon prep or how do you study. And, um, and the first thing he said, he showed a couple pictures, and I have them. He was talking about how he was in Rome uh, a few years ago. And he went to one place, which was uh, the uh, Palace of Augustus, which is on the right. And he's like, it's amazing. It's huge. It's a part of the old city. And then he said, just a few miles away, <clears throat> and I've, I've done that walk. I've, never, I've not been to either of those places. But a few miles away is the Mamertine Prison, uh, which is where we believe with pretty good um, credibility that both Paul and Peter were held uh, in prison there at different times. And it's where Paul wrote some of the letters that we now have in our canon, in our Bible. And, um, and so, again, I'm sitting there, and I'm like, yeah, how do you study? How do you exegete this passage? And he starts, and he doesn't talk at all about sermon prep. And he says, um, would, you, would you even like believe, if you look at those two places, would you believe that the, the message in the kingdom that was announced in the massive palace is, uh, would be ancient history 200 years later? And would you believe that the message in the kingdom that was announced in that prison is still advancing and growing and moving? That we're actually still living into that kingdom, and it's not the kingdom that was announced at the palace 
that we're still talking about. And then he said this, and this is a room of people that primarily communicate um, God ideas, God's word. And he said that you, and I think that this is translated for anybody, um, not just if you do this. He said, you carry a word that tears down and rises up kingdoms. He said, you carry a message that can raise up a kingdom, but also can tear it down. And one kingdom that was built on the wisdom of man is now ancient history, and we talk a lot about Rome, and we can learn from it. But one, the other kingdom that was brought in by humility and uh, subversive uh, behavior is actually now being glorified because it is about Jesus. And, you know, I'm sitting there, and I'm crying, and it's ugly. And it's like, I haven't even met John yet, and he's my hero. I don't want him to see me cry. Like, I usually don't hide that, as uh, you know, if you've been around here. But um, I'm like crying, and I'm like, he, and he's like, we, we need people. We need people that are willing to do in the dark what is now shown in the light. And he's talking about how what you do, and he's a room full of mostly pastors. He said, what you do in the dark matters. What your life looks like behind the stage really matters. And he said, God's looking for people that he can trust with this kingdom and with this message. And, uh, and this isn't <clears throat> one of the communication strategies I learned there. This is just me saying, I was so moved by what he was saying. And probably because it caught me so off guard. I was expecting uh, one thing, and he just started opening up another thing about how worthy the kingdom of God is and how worthy the news of Jesus is and how amazing it is that the kingdom that was announced from a prison is still one that we get to live in today. And I'm blown away by the goodness of God that we, um, because he's so much better at it than we are, but he calls us ambassadors and he allows us to carry the kingdom with him. And, uh, And as I was listening to that and crying and trying to hide it and all of that, I was like, you know what, this is moving me. I'd love to share it with my church family of how important it is that we get to carry a kingdom that cannot be stopped. And we're carrying a kingdom that is everlasting. And, uh, and when John said, you know, he's looking for people that he can trust, I just said, you know, I want to be that. And, and I want this to be a church full of that. I want this to be a church full of people that God looks at and he's like, man, I can trust them. I can trust that community. I can trust them with this message. I can trust what happens behind closed doors is the same as when they're in public. And um, so I just want to pray about that, and then we're going to launch into Acts. But Father, we do ask, um, Holy Spirit, that this would be a church um, that gets to carry your kingdom, and we, and we take that really seriously, because it's such a joy, Lord. It is such a joy to get to carry your word in your kingdom. And so, um, Holy Spirit, thank you for um, the way that you have sustained your kingdom and the rest of the kingdoms of the world are, um, are just temporary. And so we invite you into this church, and we want to be people um, that you look at and say, yeah, I can trust them. I can trust them with um, the thing I'm doing in Cincinnati and in the, in the earth. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've been going through a series uh, in the book of Acts, and, uh, and so we did it for a few months, and then we paused for August and September, and now we are back. I did Acts 13 and 14 last week. We're going to be in Acts 15 this week. And uh, and Acts 15 is basically built around a dispute. It's built around a disagreement that was happening in the early church. And this is one of the primary reasons we wanted to, as a new church, study the book of Acts because it was another new church that dealt with all kinds of problems and issues and saw success. And so we want to learn from them. So Acts 15, we'll start with what the dispute was. Verses 1 and 2, it says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. 
Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some of the other believers, to go to Jerusalem and see what the apostles and elders said about this question. And, and there's some critique around uh, Luke. So Luke is the guy that wrote uh, the book of Acts and also the Gospel of Luke. And there's some critique in like scholarship of like, man, he doesn't talk enough about the disputes that were going on in the church. Um, and, and that isn't for me to decide. But there are moments where it's like, man, it seems like there was something going on and we don't quite understand the outcome or why that was a disagreement or what exactly they were disagreeing on. But uh, it cannot be said here because uh, Luke spends a whole chapter talking about a major disagreement that was in the church. Actually, this disagreement is the reason that Paul wrote the letter of Galatians and so many other letters, but it was this timeline as Acts 15 is happening that Paul's also writing back, and we talked about this last week, Paul in his first missionary journey was in Galatia. I know we remember that. Everybody remembers everything I say. And, uh, and so now Paul's writing a couple years later, and he's writing about this issue to the Galatians because this issue has now invaded the churches that he just started. And the issue is, do you have to become a Jew to become a Christian? If you are a Gentile, of which I am, a Gentile is just non-Jewish person, so I'm going to guess most of us in here are, are Gentiles. So this is really, really important for all of us. Do you have to obey the law to come to Jesus or can you go straight to Jesus? That's the issue that they're talking about. This is a pivotal moment in the history of the church that 2,000 years later still has implications for us. Um, theological scholar I. Howard Marshall, he says Acts 15 is the structural theological center of Acts. John Stott says the unanimous decision that came out of Acts 15 liberated the gospel from its Jewish swaddling clothes into being God's message for all humankind. John Stott says it was once this and after Acts 15, it's now this. It is for all people. And so the church, the early apostles and elders, uh, they all gather in Jerusalem, kind of where still the, the hub of the church was. Verse 5 and 6, it says, Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. And this is kind of how they uh, dealt with issues or disagreements back at that time. And it's not unlike what we do now um, in like a court of law. So they would gather, they'd present their case, and then a decision would be made. Um, and this is the first of, and warning, like long church word, this is the first ecumenical council that we see. Uh, it's the first gathering where it's like, we've got to get this straight or else the church is going to divide over this thing. Uh, another famous one, the Council of Nicaea, it's where we get the Nicene Creed. But the most important one is the Jerusalem Council. This one right here, because it's addressing a big question, how are you saved? And so they call an assembly, which uh, every time I read Acts 15, and you'll see what I'm talking about, it kind of feels like an intervention. It feels like people just standing up, like stating their case after the initial thing has been made. And I don't know, um, I don't know if you've ever had an intervention done with you, but I have. Uh, it was in college. I was a sophomore in college. And every time I read Acts 15, I think about this scene. And uh, I came home from class. And I lived with, uh, in two different apartments with seven guys. And then another apartment was four girls. And it was kind of our crew. And uh, I walk in. And my six guy friends are in a circle, all with stools, along with three of the four girls. 
And uh, I'm like, well, this is weird. They're just in a circle, and there's one stool that's open. And they tell me to have a seat. <laughs> and, uh, and they start one by one, just kind of what we're about to read. They start to stand up and tell me why it's a bad idea that I'm trying to date the girl that I'm trying to date. <laughs> and here's what's crazy. The girl missing, their friend, our friend, that was the girl. Uh, and this is, doesn't end with me marrying her. This isn't Catherine. So, <laughs> spoiler alert. And, uh, and so they, one by one, her friends start to tell me why I shouldn't date her. My friends start to tell me why I shouldn't date her. And she's a really nice girl. And I know that you assume there's always two sides to every story. This sounds ridiculous. There's no other side. I mean, the only argument they had was like, she has a boyfriend. And <laughs> they've been together four or five years. And now they're happily, well, they actually are happily married. And, uh, and so intervention happens. And uh, every time I read Acts 15, I think about that. This has nothing to do with Acts 15, but here's the kind of friend you should look for. I get so, and it's mostly playful, but they're serious. I get so like, uh, all right, it's my turn to speak, uh, that I stand on a stool, just like on a stool. And, uh, and I start, you know, I guess I, I was a finance major, but I knew I was going to be a pastor because I start preaching at him. <laughs> and, uh, and it's mostly playful, but I'm making the argument for why all of them are wrong and I'm right. And uh, wouldn't you know it, as I'm standing on a stool yelling, she walks in. <laughs> of course she did, because no one's at her house. No one's at the other guy's house. All of her friends are in one, one room. And I'm yelling about why I should be dating her and why that's okay. She walks into the room, and I just freeze. I'm like, ah. And I just, like, no words came out of my mouth. As I'm yelling, um, or as she walks in, hears me yelling on a stool. Here's the kind of friend that you want. I had a friend, still have a friend. His name's Zach. He sees what's happening, and he stands on a stool right next to me. And he starts screaming, like makes no sense, just starts screaming and yelling. And he said, uh, hey, Brittany, her name's Brittany. Hey, Brittany, we're just standing on stools yelling. And he looked like an idiot. <laughs> but he totally deflected the awkward conversation I was going to have to have with her. So I read Acts 15, and I can't help get the picture of what was happening there. And here's one thing I did learn, because a couple weeks later, I'm like, oh, yeah, they're right, <laughs> um, is uh, if, if many trusted voices are telling you something that's in opposition to what you're doing or believing, you don't have to believe them. Um, and you might still be right, but you really, really should consider that. Uh, if many, and, and God's spirit is, if you're a believer, if you're following Jesus, God's spirit is on you. That's so good. But God's spirit is also in other people. And if many people are saying, hey, what you're doing, especially if they're following the will of Jesus, if many trusted voices are around you, saying something that is in opposition to what you're doing or believing, I would at least stop and consider it. And the thought here is, um, no, we don't want to have like a disagreement. We don't have a, like a, a rough conversation because that would get us away from unity. And actually, usually, an honest conversation is a catalyst for unity. It feels opposite. It's the upside-down kingdom. It's the cross-shaped world where it feels like if we have a hard conversation, that moves us away from unity. But oftentimes, a hard conversation moves us towards unity. And that's what happens in Acts 15. And so the first person to stand up in response to the Pharisees is Peter. And obviously, Peter's a big deal in the church. He walked with Jesus. And so he starts to talk about how he's seen God move among the Gentiles. In verse 9, and he says, And he, God, did not discriminate between us and them. For he purified their hearts by faith. 
Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. And so Peter starts to talk about how, guys, it seems like there's not a difference between us and them. And this was not Peter's tune for the whole time since Jesus had left. I mean, first he has this encounter in uh, Acts 10, where, or Acts 9, Acts 10, where a Gentile uh, receives the Spirit of God. And Peter's like, I've never seen that before. But then, even uh, what scholars believe is right before this, Paul has to confront Peter because even though he saw that, he moved back into legalism. He moved back into assuming that the religious order had to happen. You couldn't go straight to Jesus. And and Paul says this in Galatians 2.11. He says, when Peter came to Antioch, which is right before this, I had to stand up against him because he was guilty. And Paul talks about how he had to confront Peter because Peter, even though he had seen God move among the Gentiles, he had fallen back into religion. He had fallen back into, no, you've got to go through the Jewish law first. And so right after this, we see now Peter remembering what's true. And he stands up for what's true, and he says, no, no, no. Actually, I think, guys, this is what I've seen. God is moving among the Gentiles. Guys, the Bible's amazing. Like, we can read Acts 15 and then look at Galatians 2, and it's like, oh, my gosh, we can see how these things line up. And Paul was saying this, and it resulted with this. I just think the Bible is awesome. I mean, that's why we want to take time to read it every now and then, because you can see how the church is coming together. And Luke is consistently recording, if you look at some of the things Peter says throughout the book of Acts, Luke is consistently recording Peter's shock of the difference, or there is no difference between us and them. Peter's always, and it's actually not us and them, for for me and probably for you, a Gentile, it's, it's us and them. We are the them. You are the them. And Peter is constantly shocked that there is no difference between us and them. He's constantly amazed that God's moving and giving his spirit to the Gentiles the same way that he gives them it to the Jews. Then Paul and Barnabas stand up, verse 12, and it says, The whole assembly became quiet as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the signs and wonders God had done done among the Gentiles. So they go straight to their experience. Guys, we can't deny. I, I heard what Peter said. We can't deny. We've seen the same thing. We were just in Galatia, a bunch of Gentiles there, and the spirit of God fell on them. You wouldn't believe what we saw in Lystra or in Derby, or in Iconium. We saw the Spirit of God actually coming on people that were not circumcised, people that were not in adherence to the Jewish law. And then finally in verse 13, this is the third, and this is the big one. The last person stands up, the leader of the church, who's James. Uh, and not, not the disciple James, but James was actually Jesus' brother. And, uh, and James was not a believer in Jesus until he saw his brother die and come back to life. His own brother didn't believe in him until he actually witnessed the resurrection, which makes sense. It would be really difficult to have Jesus as a brother. Like your parents say, they don't have favorites, (laughs) but they probably do. And James uh, gives his life to his brother, uh, gives his life to Jesus, and he actually becomes the de facto leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so he speaks last as the leader. He says, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, who's Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins, I will rebuild and restore it. 
that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. And uh, so he quotes scripture. I'm, this is probably review. A lot of us read Amos this week, I'm sure. Uh, this is referencing Amos. Amos 9, uh, James starts to speak about an Old Testament prophet. And he says, guys, remember. Remember that there was a prophet who said this. And he looks back, and, and everybody in the room would have known, oh, yeah, that Amos did say that. He said, hey, guys, I think that that is this. Remember when Amos said that through David's fallen tent, which is a very Jewish way of saying through David's family line, that there would come a new kingdom? Guys, I think that that is happening here. Even in verse 14, he says that God would choose a people for his name. That's very Jewish Hebrew language. It used to just be Israel was a people for his name. And he says, God would choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. And then he goes on to talk about how Amos had predicted it. And so the gospel, this news, starts to be blown up. And I want you to notice how uh, the church makes this decision. I think this is really wise, and we can learn from this. First, they acknowledged that a debate was necessary. Then they recognized God's activity. A few people stood up and said, look, I've seen God move. I've seen the Spirit of God come on the Gentiles. Then they started to interpret Scripture, and then they got together. They said, we've got to come to a decision, and their leaders met, and then the church aligned underneath that and said, yeah, that's, that's where we're going, because they knew there had to be uh, some kind of alignment where this is where we're going. And the church makes this decision, and that was in verse 18. I'm going to skip to verse 20. This is kind of the end of James's speech. And he's telling the Gentiles what they need to do. He says, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat strangled of strangled animals, and from blood. It's pretty self-explanatory. And he says those things, and there's all kinds of debate. I mean, everyone agrees. Look, there is some kind of element here of, of uh, false gods and temples. That you're getting rid of temple worship. James says, look, when you go to a temple, you sacrifice an animal to a false god, and there's temple prostitutes there. We, we don't do that anymore. Hey, Gentiles, like, maybe that was your lifestyle. We don't do that here. And so he starts to write that. And even uh, there's an early Christian writing called the Didache. And uh, it said that the reason James chose these four things is because this was worship to false gods or dead gods. And it's really great to, like, point the finger at them and say, why are you worshiping a dead god? understanding that we at times worship a dead God or a false God or something that's different or something that's not Yahweh. And so um, James says these things and, and the heart of what he's saying and really the heart of the Old Testament law is, hey, I care, uh, God cares about idolatry and immorality. Basically, God cares where you give your attention and your body to. God really wants to make sure that we have this kind of under lock and key. And so he says, these are the things that we're going to ask the Gentile Christians to do. But something's missing. Because he doesn't go from verse 18 to verse 20. And obviously we put the numbers in there. But he says something before he gives instruction for what they're supposed to do. And this is the key. This is the summary of what James is deciding, who's speaking for the leaders of the church. He says in verse 19, after the argument, it says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And so before he gives instruction about what they're supposed to do, he says, here's what we need to understand. This is the church, the internal thing. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And don't 
think that the order doesn't matter here. I think it's very important that James, first thing he says is, let's not make it difficult. And yes, here's some things that we need to make sure. And in the church, we talk a lot about, uh, because it comes from scripture, we talk a lot about grace and truth. And it's grace and truth, grace and truth, grace and truth. I would even make the argument, if you look at Jesus' ministry, it's usually grace, then truth. And where the church, at times, the church is the bride of Christ, he died for her. But where we can get messed up at times is when we go truth, then grace. It's not grace and truth, but it's truth, then grace. Because that's offensive to us. That's offensive to me. No, you've got to figure your stuff out before you come to my God. I've been walking with him for 10 years. You can't just come in all dirty. That's offensive to us. And so the church often has chased people away by saying it's first truth, then grace. Uh, my parents taught us, like, I mean, they were big on manners, especially my mom. And, uh, and usually before we wanted something, my mom would make us say please. And I remember um, when I was really little, like seven or eight, I set up a bunch of couch cushions next to the coffee table. My brother ran through it, cracked his head open. And uh, I like vaguely remember driving to the hospital with my brother who has like a split open head. And I want you to imagine, parents, you can probably do this pretty easily. I want you to imagine if my mom walked in the room and they're about to stitch my brother up and said, hold on, don't touch him until he says please. We're trying to teach him manners. We want the truth of manners to be pervaded in his life. Don't give him, don't give him anything. Don't stitch him up. He first has to say please. That's crazy, right? No parent, no, no good parent would do that. No, we'll work on manners later. We'll work on the truth of how they're supposed to behave later. You need to stitch him up now. And that sounds crazy to us. But just as stitches are relatively important and urgent in a situation like that. How important and urgent is the gospel to go to people that do not know Jesus? How important is the gospel for people that are entering into or seeking a relationship with Jesus that we would first say, actually, you've got to do a bunch of this stuff? And this is what James is saying. Guys, we're going we're gonna to start by not making it difficult for them. And, and if you've been hurt by faith, or if you've been hurt by the church, uh, if difficult things have been said to you, um, First of all, they haven't elected me to speak for the church, but I will, uh, and say, I'm really sorry. I, uh, I'm not ignorant to think that we've never made a mistake, and there are real hurts that have happened from the church, um, and if that's happened to you, I'm really, really sorry. We, uh, we mess up all the time, and I'm guessing what happened is potentially something was said to you that was wrong. But I'm guessing what happened was something was said to you that was right at the wrong time. Um, because, and if you're not a follower of Jesus, I think it's good to know this. We, we believe some, some countercultural things. Starting with a guy died and raised from the dead, and he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. We'll start there. We believe some countercultural things, and where we can get mixed up at times is thinking that we've got to lead with all of the truths and not with grace. We see this in John 8, uh, a woman's caught in adultery, like literally caught in the act of adultery, thrown before Jesus. The religious leaders are like, hey, the law says we should stone her. What do you think we should do? And Jesus says, yeah, that's so true. This is a paraphrase. Um, if you're without sin, why don't you go ahead and throw the first stone? If you're without sin, why don't you throw the first stone at that woman? And uh, one by one, everybody leaves. One by one, all of the accusers leave. And the woman's left there, 
Jesus just saves her life. And he says, has no one accused you? And the woman goes, no, no, nobody has. And then Jesus says, well, then neither do I. Grace, grace, grace. He leads with such a strong message of grace. And then sometimes we forget. The last thing he says to her is, now go and sin no more. Truth. But he saves her life and he gives her grace upon grace. And, and we don't want to say anything. We, we only preach what's written in the word. So this is my um, assumption. This is not in scripture. But I'm going to bet that woman's life was changed. I'm going to bet that some of the actions of her life were forever changed. Not because Jesus just said, go and sin no more, but because he built a reputation of grace and she witnessed probably love that she had never witnessed before. That at the very end when he says, go and sin no more, she takes that seriously because she has never experienced the front end of that grace. Jesus often led with grace and he certainly cared about truth. But he said it at the end. Here's what Satan is going to do. We need to be aware that there's an enemy. He's after us. Um, he wants to do anything he can to keep you from relationship with God. Satan will often make it difficult to come to Jesus and then easy to stay the same. Satan is going to, he, I mean, don't think that he's not in like religious requirements. He's going to try to do this. I believe that he was even in this and saying, well, we should make it really difficult for people to come into relationship with Jesus. Here's what Satan's going to do. He's going to make it very difficult for people to come to Jesus, and then he's going to make it very easy to stay the same. What Jesus does is make it easy to come to him, and then his invitation is to follow. His invitation is mobile. His invitation is not staying the same. Jesus is interested in becoming us becoming like him, not just becoming church-going versions of who we were before. Jesus makes it easy to come to him and then says, follow me. And here's the thing about following someone. You guys know this. If you followed somebody in a car, they have your full attention. When you follow someone, they have your full attention. And you better believe if Jesus starts to get more and more of your attention, of course we will go and sin less. Of course things in our life are going to change. When Jesus starts to get more and more of your attention, it's just going to happen the way that you think, the way that you handle your money, the way that you uh, think about sexuality, the way that you think about uh, your thought life is going to change. It's going to start to change. And here's what Satan doesn't want you to know. Actually, that process can be fun. He wants to make it sound like such a burden. He wants to make holiness sound like um, such a heavy yoke to bear, when actually there is, in fact, happy holiness. It's a joy to become like Jesus when you first start with giving him your attention. Jesus' invitation is to follow him, but he makes it so, so easy to get there. Uh, and so I want to say this. If you're a follower of Jesus, um, if you're in, if you, you know, have given your life to Jesus, uh, where in your life, this is what I want to pull out of this, where in your life can you better or more fully give attention to Jesus? Uh, is there a corner of your heart or of your life that has kind of been off limits to the domain and the kingdom of Jesus. Also, I want to ask this, is, is there um, anywhere in you, and I'm asking this for myself, and it's convicting, that we have made it difficult for others? Is there anything in you, is there anywhere in you that we have made it difficult for others? Also, if you're in, if you're like, are following Jesus, um, and you have not been baptized, 
it is time. If you have not been water baptized since you've made the decision to start following Jesus, it is time. And there's all kinds of discussion around, like, is it essential to do this? Um, and that's for another, another Sunday. But I'll say this. It's not. It doesn't seem to be optional. Jesus invites you, not in a heavy way, but he said, look, identify with me. Identify with my church. And so I want to talk to you. I really, like, I want to have a conversation. If you have chosen to follow Jesus and you haven't been water baptized yet, then we want to... Um, I want to talk. And here's the last thing. Um, if you're not in, like if you're not sure about this Jesus thing, if you're uh, still a little skeptical, I just want you to know that the invitation is there. And it's not hard. And it's an invitation not into a religion, but it's an invitation into a relationship with the most beautiful, wonderful, loving man that has ever walked the earth. And what we learn from Acts 15 is he has not made it difficult. It's not hard. There's no prerequisite to following Jesus except for what he says, which is repent. Basically, turn. Acknowledge that it's probably best if you're not in charge of your life anymore, but you want to give that responsibility, that weight, that yoke, that burden to someone else. And then you get to receive the love of Jesus. Jesus often says, repent and believe. There's not a bunch of religious requirements before that. So if any of these, um, any of those three things or anything else, we want to pray with you. Um, Mandy's going to be back there. I'm going to be back there. If any of those three things um, spoke to you, or if you just want prayer, we always want to offer that. Um, but especially if you're interested, what's it mean to follow Jesus? I haven't really been baptized, or I just need to confess, I've made it difficult. I've done the opposite. I've done what the Pharisees were doing. I've made it difficult to come to Jesus, and I want to make that easy for others. The invitation to follow Jesus is open, and it's there because he is so, so wonderful, and his kingdom is on the move. So let's worship the man that is worthy of our praise. Let's stand up, and we want to sing to the God who made a way to him.